You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and to get ready to study God's Word together. Great to see you. Uh, it's great to be back here in Elgin, uh, all the rest of the campuses. It's awesome to have you guys uh, join us. One of the things that I wanted to do before we started uh, studying God's Word, which we're going to be in the book of Jonah in the next few minutes, just so you know. Um, when I first arrived here, uh, one of the surprising facts that I had learned right before I came was that the church was in a significant amount of debt. It's usually something you want to know before you make a decision to go. But uh, when I first arrived here, so I think the, the number was about, I remember it's $33.4 million of debt, um, which obviously is a lot. I remember it because we were praying every day at 334 that the Lord would do something about the debt. Anyway, I'm here to tell you actually that by God's grace, we've actually reduced the debt down to $29.8 million, which is really cool. I mean, <laughs> some people are like, what? They we're still, we're cheering for $29 million. <laughs> But, right, it's the trajectory that we're excited about, but I really, I actually just wanted to take the opportunity to thank you all for your faithfulness. I really feel like uh, the Lord is doing a great work here at Harvest. It is such a blessing to see a, a church um, renew, and I pray that you feel it. I pray that you're uh, excited that you're part of it. Um, Selah. Um, if you have a Bible, again, I'd love for you to open it to the book of Jonah, it's only a little book, a little tiny book in the uh, Old Testament. You know this, but stories have a remarkable power. Uh, usually, uh, we tell our cultural values through our stories. So if I want to communicate something to someone, I don't just, you know, communicate something to my kids. I don't just do it by... Uh, lecturing them about that particular subject. I might tell them, hey, these are the kinds of things we as a family value, and then I'll tell a story to reinforce that value because the story is going to stick with them far longer than, you know, the statements do. And this is the way the world works, basically, that you can tell a culture's values throughout the history of the world by the kinds of stories that they, that they tell. So, that means that I could probably go to the movies these days and I could find out what are the cultural values or go to TV or Netflix or whatever. I can go and find out what the cultural values are of our society by just looking at them. If you're an alien and you show up right now, if you're an alien here today, welcome. If you're an alien and you show up and you want to find out the values of a particular culture, you just need to watch uh, you know, a day of Netflix or go to the movie theater for a couple days and watch all the, all the films. What you'd find out, of course, is that in our culture, we value things like perseverance. Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. You, some of you know the movie Rudy, because you're looking at me like you don't, right? But uh, Rudy keeps going, no matter what. Frodo keeps going. 
He's got to get to Mordor, for those of you who are younger, Miles Morales in the, in the, in the, the Amazing spy, the Spider-Man movies, the Into the Spider-Verse. You keep getting back up. Yeah, we value that kind of stuff. And you can see it in the way that we treat our sports heroes and stuff. If they fall down and then they're a comeback story, we love them even more. You do you. That's Disney's like mode. That's what they should put. Disney, you do you. That's, the, that's their, because all their movies are basically that. Find out who you are, pursue exactly who you are, and don't let anybody tell you any differently. Uh, justice. We love things, we love it when the bad guy gets it, and when the good guy doesn't ever get it, right? Jason Bourne. We think Jason Bourne's the greatest. We need more Jason Bournes in, in the world. Evil should get, get it in the end. Fathers are dumb. Now, that might surprise you, but seriously, think about this for the last while. Who, who are the heroes in our TV shows and movies over the last number of years? There's very few, like, fathers. Like, Father Knows Best, those of you who are really old, you remember Father Knows Best, or even in the 1980s, uh, um, Family Ties. The father was always the right, he was always a good dude. He was always doing the right kinds of things. But nowadays, you've got Homer Simpson, right? Though. Peter Griffin. Family guy, I mean, he's, he's an idiot. If you ever watch a movie, it's always the dad who's doing the stupid things and the wife who's coming along and going, okay, and she's like the, she's like the, the, the smart person in the room who's trying to make everybody, everything go well. And if you look around our society now, that's pretty much the way most guys are told that they are supposed to act. We always wonder why it is that so many fathers act so stupidly. Well, they're told all the time in the movies that that's exactly what they're supposed to be like. The smart person in the house is the mom. She's the one everybody should listen to. Father just goofs around all the time and does crazy, crazy things that cost money and embarrass the family. You can tell a culture's values by the stories that they tell in their, in their movies, in their writings, in those sorts of things. Jonah's a story like this. Jonah is a story that reveals something shocking, quite honestly, about Israel in the days that it was written, but it has enormous, enormous impact for people like you and me today. I mean, most people, even if you go out to the streets today and they have no Christian background, and you mention the word name, do you know Jonah and the whale? They'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that story. Because it's lasted for so, for so long. It's a great story. It's a surprising story. The guy who's supposed to be the good guy is kind of not the good guy. And at the end, you expect him to come around, but he doesn't really come around. The whole thing ends on a question. You're gone to a movie like that where it sits down and it ends and nothing's really resolved. And you're like, well, that was stupid. That, that's what this is. Surprising turns of events. Amazing, you know, things. The dude lives in a whale for a couple days or a fish for a few days. Great story. Somebody should make a movie about this story. So here's what I want to do over the next four weeks. We're going to actually study this, this book in four bites. Um, we should probably just do it in one sitting. It's meant to be read in one sitting. So if you go home sometime or in the next four weeks, you're just sitting around and you're thinking to yourself, oh, okay, what should I do? Should I look at Instagram or Twitter? Think, no, I should read the book of Jonah. <laughs> read the book of Jonah just all the way through and you'll kind of catch some of the nuances and, 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 and twists and turns that are meant to be seen.
But we can't do that all at one time. So I want to break it down into four pieces. This first piece today, okay, you ready for it? Is only the first three verses because I can't help myself. All right? It's only the first three, only first three verses. Jonah 1, 1 to 3. And in this passage, we're going to learn a couple of things. Number one, we're going to learn about the primacy of preaching. And two, we're going to learn about the foolishness of fleeing. Primacy of preaching and the foolishness of fleeing. What do I mean by those two? Well, let's just get into the book itself. The primacy of preaching. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a standard way that you talk about uh, a prophet who is receiving. If you were people in Israel, they would be accustomed to that. If you've read the Bible, read the Bible very much, you're accustomed to this kind of language. All right, there's a prophet, and God's going to come to him, tell him to go and say something to a group of people. He's going to go say, face a whole lot of difficulties, but they're probably they're going to repent or something to that effect. That's that's what's expected here. Word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, "Get up, arise, get up." I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city. All right, what makes Nineveh so great? This is probably not a qualitative term. It's not like God's saying, it's a really great city. You're going to love it there. They have a bean. You know? They're not... what, what he means is it's huge and important and valuable. And that's certainly the way people viewed Nineveh in those days. It was large and very important. It was one of the chief cities of uh, the nation of Assyria. And these, you know, language like this, Assyria, what is that? Well, compare it to this, right? It was like one of the big superpowers of the day. So back in the Cold War, we had what? The Soviet Union and the United States superpowers. We might have what? China today and the United States. And I mean, you fill in the blank with whatever one. It was one of those. One of the biggest, most militaristically powerful places in the entire world at the time. And it's Chief cities, one of them was Nineveh. So it is Chicago, very similar to the importance that Chicago has. And just like Chicago, it was uh, pretty wealthy. I know that might not sound true, but we, we are at the crossroads of a whole bunch of places. People go through Chicago to get to other places. We have this massive airport, and that's made us a center of commerce. Well, this is a map. Are you ready for my map? Let's just have an open mind. Um, there's a river. It's called the Tarsh... Uh, no, it's not Tarshish. The Tigris River that kind of runs north-south. And then there's a main road that ran east-west. And right here was the city of Nineveh. So just like when you drive in, uh, around the, the, the country this summer... Uh, and you'll be driving along a road... And all of a sudden there'll be a whole bunch of built-up stuff... Where there's a port... And the highway goes through it, and it's a bigger town than, say, the little town that's on Route 66 that used to be big, but now that the road is not heavily traveled, it's not as big. That's what happens when you have crossroads of, ma of big-time travelers. You, you have major cities, and that's where the banks grow up. That's where all the industry grows up. Chicago. Wealthy city. Large and important city, really idolatrous city, uh, at most of the locations like this, when you had a, when you had a crossroads of, you know, whether it's roads or, or the waterways, 
um, you, you would usually have the temples of different gods and goddesses that would be built up there. They'd be on the highest hills around or something like that. Because, you know, if you're on a, on a boat and you're traveling up the Tigris, you want a place to stop so you can worship your god or goddess. Well, Nineveh was that place, and the chief goddess of Nineveh, Nineveh was Ishtar, the goddess of sexual love and war, because those go together, Right? I, maybe. <laughs> most, most scholars end up saying, well, she was probably the god of the passions, right? The really passionate, heavy, th- that. So people these days have written long, actually, articles about how it is that the modern Ishtar is Wonder Woman, which is kind of true, right? You don't want to get in Wonder Woman's way. She'll beat the living daylights out of you, but she's also kind of hot, right? That's Ishtar. And the worship of Ishtar, of course, if you're the goddess of sexual love and war, I, Guess how they worshipped her? So violent, violent worship, violent followers who would do whatever they could to their enemies, right? And the worship of her involved a lot of prostitutes. So sexually immoral city, filthy, barbaric city, important city. In fact, a lot of the language that's used of uh, Nineveh in this book sounds very much like the language that was used about Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's on purpose. Because you're supposed to think, Nineveh, what a dump. God should get them. God should get that great, that great city. What is he supposed to do when he gets there? Oops. Word of the Lord came to Jonah. The son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. That great city. And what you're supposed to do is I want you to call out. This word means preach, proclaim. I want to call out against it. Why? Because their evil has come up before me. So the thing that God's really concerned about is the same thing he was concerned about with Sodom and Gomorrah. Their wickedness had come up before the Lord. One of the, you need to know uh, kind of what, what everyday life was like in uh, ancient cities because it's very different than what we have. You know, we have street sweepers and fire departments and indoor plumbing. They did not. Cities in the ancient world were just gross. Just gross. But they were where you wanted to live because they were walled in, and that's protected you from invading armies or things like that. So you might have land outside the walls of this city, but you lived in the city for protection. So this is a grand, huge, walled city, Nineveh. You'd walk through the main gates, and then you'd go through. And, and, and of course, if you're going to go into the city and you're going to worship your deity, usually you have to bring a sacrifice. And so as you're walking through the city, you're bringing your sacrifice with you. And those sacrifices, right, sheep, goats, these sorts of things, they don't always defecate in the appropriate spaces, right? And people don't carry the little baggies around their hands and pick it up. They don't do that. So on the streets, you find a lot of, well, feces, so the stink, right? Just think, think about the smell that would, Rockford smell. I'm kidding. I just teased, I just teased Rockford because it's near, right? But it, it's, a, it, it's a smelly, smelly spot. Now, now you say, well, you wouldn't have, you could close your windows. They didn't have windows. They had, of course, open air windows. Apartments were built. Because, you know, if you're in a walled city, the real estate is really, you know, uh, 
prime. Every, every little location you, you can't build out. Nobody's going to have a half acre, half acre lot and think, I want to have a playground for my kids. No, you're going to live in apartments which are poorly built because they didn't have, you know, as frustrating as we find our cities in their codes, they didn't have any of those, right? There was no Nineveh uh, Department of Housing that came along and said, you need to have a handrail down those stairs so no one falls. They just built these buildings up. In fact, there used to be a saying in ancient Rome that uh, every day you could, hear, uh, you could hear an apartment complex falling. So like this is one of the common sounds in the city. You walk it by, you're like, what is that? Oh, so don't worry about it. It's just an apartment complex coming down. The poorer people, the poorer people lived on the top floors. Because indoor plumbing's a problem. And so if you live on the bottom floors, you can actually use the facil- some facilities, right? But if you're on the top floor, you got to use whatever you got around the house, and then you throw it out the window to join with all the other stuff in the street that's already there. Really, really gross. They had a lot of eye diseases. Uh, one of the challenges in ancient cities is because you have all of, these, all of this junk in the middle of a street, there's a lot of flies that show up. And of course, flies start getting into the junk in the street, and they fly up, go through the open windows, and you've got little Tommy in his bassinet there. And he lands on little Tommy's eye, and now little Tommy's got conjunctivitis. And there's no antibiotics for that kind of thing. And so eyesight was a real problem in the ancient world. Lots and lots of people couldn't see well because, you know, as children, they had horrible uh, conjunctivitis and things that made their vision bad for years. And it wasn't just that baby. I mean, it goes up, flies on that baby, and then takes the conjunctivitis and goes to the next house, this little fly, and lands on little Susie. How do you cook? Well, you have to have an open fire. Which for those of you who, who know, that, that, that's, don't know that, that's not safe in, in crowded apartment buildings. Like, we have a codes against it for a reason. If you decide to build a, like a campfire in the middle of your, of your house right now, someone's going to get upset with you. But in those days, that's how, you, that's how you cooked. You had an open fire. And of course, if you have an open fire, there's a good likelihood that the thing's going to burn down. And again, there's no fire department. So real problems in the city of Nineveh. Now, I'm telling you all of this because... If you and I were to take like a mission trip or like, hey, let's do a tour of Nineveh. We get there, go outside the wall, start walking through. The, you, you would be walking through and you'd be like, this city's got a lot of problems. And those problems that you're talking about would be material and social. If we're going to do anything for this city, you know, it would be helpful if we maybe built a fire department or it might be built uh, uh, clean wells or democracy, right? It's a lot of material things that we would, and we came, if we came out, and now we were going to actually um, give a word to our friends. We want you to give money so that we can go to Nineveh. What would we do for Nineveh when we went there? Well, we would go and we would say, we're going to do this really cool, tangible thing. We're going to give them wells, and we're going to do all these things. And people would say, yes, that's exactly what they need, these material solutions. And yet the Lord, when he gets a chance to actually say something or do something in Nineveh, he tells, uh, he tells Jonah, I want you to go call out against it. What's that going to do? Hey, Nineveh, this whole place is a mess and you're in deep trouble. <laughs> you know? 
Don't call out against it. Solve the problems. And yet, Yahweh's trying to solve the problem because he, now listen very closely to me. Social and material ills, as real as they are, are always downstream from moral and spiritual ills. Social and material ills are always downstream from moral and spiritual ills. In other words, the things that we see around our society these days that really plague us and give us all sorts of difficulty, the things we want to say, we need justice for that, and that needs to be sorted out, and the water, and the blah, 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 are all real things that need to be sorted out, but they are not primary things. The primary thing is sin. The primary thing is that there's wickedness inside of us that we, we have a hard time stopping. There's a passage of scripture, um, I wrote my master's thesis about the passage in Romans chapter 7. Those of you who are part of the church and been around for a long time know that Romans 7 is a passage that says, uh, whatever I I, I do, I don't want to do, but evil that I don't want to do is what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And there's a big debate in the Christian church throughout centuries, basically, about Who is he talking about? Is he talking about himself, Paul, as a Christian? Or is he talking about himself, Paul, before he was a Christian? There's a whole bunch of arguments all around that. I'm I'm really confident that it's about someone who's before a Christian. We can talk about that later, I promise. But listen, what he's describing in this passage is basically, here's a guy who desperately wants to obey the law of God like all sorts of Jewish people did. They were like, yes, Lord, Ten Commandments, I'm with you. And I want to now obey the law of God, right? Do not murder, do not covet. Okay, I'm not going to covet. I'm going to actually bless instead of curse. And then they try to do it and something stops them. This is the plight of every unregenerate person, every person who is apart from Christ, who is in their old nature. This is the plight of everyone. Yes, we have all of these rules and we want to keep them. They're good rules. We want to keep them. But the problem is not the rules. The problem is our ability to do them. Because something's stopping us. And what Paul describes in Romans 7 is, he calls it sin in my members. Members being hands and head and legs. There's a blockage, he says. So all of the good works that we should do, right? The building of the wells and doing all of those sorts of things. Yes, they're helpful. But unless there's something that goes on inside of our hearts, they're just window dressing. Because unless you get the root out, the weed will keep growing. You know this. It'll look good for a real short period of time. You're like, look what I did. I ripped that weed out of that yard in your face, weed. And then two days later, Louise's like, what was that? I want you to go and preach against them because their evil has come up against me. Did you, did you catch the language though? It's right here. I want you to go and I want you to call out against it. Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh, and I want you to call out against it. That's a little weird, see, because here's what I want, what, here's what I want it to say. I want you to call out to it. I want you to call out for it. 
I want you to call it about it. I want you to call it with it. People will receive it better if, you, if you're with them. When Jonah goes and finally gets there, right, there's a fish involved in all this, but eventually, it eventually he gets there, he's spit up on the beach, and he heads to Nineveh, and he's like, all right, you know what his sermon is, ready? It's the best sermon ever. It's what preachers want to say to their people for years. Yeah, 40 days and you're all dead. And you're like, where's the hope? He left the hope out. 40 days, you're dead. I'm going to go up on the hill and watch it. So he goes, he actually does, he goes out and he preaches against them, against their wickedness, against, against their sin. Can you imagine if I said that to you today, that look, what are we going to do uh, this week in the ministry? Well, I'm going to get together a group of people, we're going to go down to the, you know, the bean, and we're going to stand around it, and then we're going to turn out to everyone and we're going to preach against them. Who's in? Now, I know there are some people in the room who are like, Finally. You know, I've got a lot of things to share with these people, right? I'm going to preach it. I'm gonna, but how would they receive that? Seriously, if we went down there and said, we'd be arrested. We'd be on, certainly on TikTok, right? There's no question that we'd be in the Instagram and all over the Twitter and look at these people. They're, yeah, how horrible is this? And we'd even get Christian people end up saying to us, what a wicked, horrible thing to say because people don't need to know about the judgment of God. They need to know about the love of God. But listen very closely, the love and judgment of God are tied together. How? Well, the answer to that question is, is pretty easy, but before I give it, can I just tell you where we've been as a church? Because the reason that this is hard for us is pretty much, in my opinion, because there was a time in the Christian church that the only thing that people heard, I'm talking about kind of the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, these kinds of eras, if you were a conservative Christian church, what you would hear most every Sunday is, you're going to hell. And in that tone, hell, hell, la, 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 hell. Over and over and over and over and over again. And people were, they just got sick of it after a while. Like, I know, I know, it's, we're horrible. And then eventually some people came around and said, well, actually what people need is they don't need to just hear about hell. They need to hear about the love of God. And they're right. They're right. It's my belief they need to hear about both. But like, they're right. So what they ended up doing is saying, like some Christian leaders have over the last while, well, that's not really our message, meaning the message of hell and judgment. That's not really our message. What's our message? Our message is the love of God and the kindness of God and the compassion of God. And that's what people need to hear about. So what you have now is a bunch of churches that have basically abandoned any talk about judgment. And what they do is they try to sell Jesus to people as an addition to their already kind of settled life. Hey, take on Jesus. He's going to make everything better. I mean, it's good now, but it'd be even better. You'll have purpose and you'll have, you know, no stress. I've actually heard that. Jesus will give you less stress, said no martyr ever. <laughs> I recently actually said... Um, why should you come to faith in Jesus? Why should you follow Jesus? Well, he makes my life better and makes me better at life. Now look, that might be, that might be true. But I do find it really interesting that when you go to the scriptures and you have, actually have people proclaiming 
the, the, the message of salvation to people, the reason that it's called salvation, saving, is because there's something you're being saved from. And so you're supposed to go, Jonah, and you're supposed to preach against it. For evil is against what? Against the evil of the people in the city. You need to go and declare how I feel, says the Lord, about the evil of the people in the city. Why? Because I love them. Now listen, like I said, those go together. I'll show you how. Um, so this is in Jonah, the very end of the book. So we're reading the first verses of the book, and now this is the very end of the book. Jonah chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. So uh, Jonah, they repent. I gave it away. You don't need to come back. Okay, they repent. Nineveh, after he preaches this really bad sermon to them, they all repent, showing the power of God to do stuff with this message. And anyway, he ends up getting upset, because this, which is sort of the twist in the story, because how dare they repent, and how dare God give them an opportunity to repent. So he's sitting on a hillside, and he's irritated, and he's hot because the sun's beating down on him, and the Lord grows a plant behind him, and it gives him shade. And he's like, oh, finally, shade. And then the next day, the plant dies, and he's like, oh, and so the Lord, this is the end of the, end of the book. I told you it ended on a question. Here's the end of the book. And the Lord said, uh, you pity, this word means uh, you're concerned about, you pity the plant. Like you're sitting here moaning and complaining and kind of angry because of the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. Like you had nothing to do with the plant. And yet here you are caring a great deal about its health. Should I then not pity, be concerned about, have compassion on Nineveh, that great city, question mark? The one that I, with the people that I made and I established, should I not? You're mad about the plant and you had nothing to do with it. Shouldn't I have the right to be upset and want to reach out to these people who I made? When the Lord pities, he sends someone to preach against. <laughs> Just think about that for a minute. It's so countercultural for us. If the Lord pities and wants to have compassion on somebody, he does not go and affirm, he goes and he alters. You know, there's, this is something that happens throughout the scriptures, to be honest. There's uh, the story of the rich ruler and uh, Mark, the way that Mark tells this story in the gospel of Mark. The rich ruler is, um, comes to Jesus, uh, rich guy, what do I have to do to your life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. I kept them all, he says, which is a lie. And Jesus is like, okay, let's put it to the test. Now, he's about to tell this rich man to give away all his money, which, you know, if you spend time around rich people, is there kind of not a discussion you have around Thanksgiving, okay? So he's about to do this. It's the hardest thing he's ever going to have to say to this guy. He's going to be like, yeah, your money's, your money's an idol to you, and I need you to give it up so you can come follow me. And Jesus, 
looking at him, loved him. Okay, what's the evidence that he loved him? Well, because he said this, you lack one thing, go sell that all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Listen, you're banking your life on the treasure that you have and I'm trying to give you a greater treasure, but in order for you to have the greater treasure, you got to give up all the treasure you love so much. And this confrontation, this call to give away all that he has is an act of love. So, so listen, when the word of God pokes you, when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, what you're experiencing is actually the love of God. When somebody stands up and plays the prophet and says, this is not right, and we're like, Argh! he's acting out of love. He's preaching against because he loves. There's an article that I read this last week that I just loved, so I want to read you a little extended portion of it. It's from a website called Desiring God, which I highly, highly recommend to everybody. If you like devotional material and all sorts of stuff, it's John Piper's ministry called Desiring God. Greg Morse is one of the writers there, and here's, here's what he wrote. He said, the world is a doorway into eternity, a fact that few today consider and fear. Sinners frolic before the almighty God. Daring to provoke him to his face. Although God hates all evildoers, according to Psalm 5, verse 5. He burns with indignation toward un the unrepentant every day, according to Psalm 7, verse 11. And is even now wetting his sword and bending his bow in judgment, according to Psalms 7, verses 11 to 13. Despite all of these facts, the unrepentant go about life unmindful of their predicament. They slumber atop an active volcano. They mistake the God of delayed wrath for the God of no wrath at all. They hear about the nuclear bomb of eternity but are self-assured that it will never detonate. They approach the God of the Bible like some do those British royal guards Mocking, poking, testing him to see if he'll move. Never realizing that the rifle has lowered until it's too late. And they love the God they've created. Their God is never angry with them. Their God is only merciful, only forgiving, only compassionate. Their God serves the creature and simply pours forth unconditional love and affirmation when and how the creature calls for it. But this God's a pipe dream. This God is actually a demon. This God's absent from the whole of Scripture. Look, even now, the true God holds the unrepentant by the nape of the neck to do them unspeakable injury if they will not bow to his great love and mercy and take up his terms of peace and eternal joy offered them in the blood of his own son. So love invites us, compels us, demands that we speak. The unbelieving 
live but breaths away from eternal pleasure or eternal pain, pain, amazing grace or everlasting justice? Are we to say nothing or like mumble about it as if it's not true? So let's resolve together with Charles Spurgeon who said these words. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Look, God so loved the world that he sent his own son to die for his people's crime. Jesus took our place atop the volcano. He willingly traveled through hell's door and became our door into heaven. He was pierced by the father's glistening sword, struck by his full quiver of arrows. See, God's firing squad took aim at him and deafening shots thundered upon Calvary. He walked into the furnace of God's judgment He plunged the depths of the lake of fire. He was tormented. He was crushed. He drank the cup of God's anger, poured out full strength. Hell's mouth gaped open to receive us. But he stood alone and shut the hell up for his people. And on Sunday, he rose in victory. See, death, sin, Satan lay shuddering beneath his feet. It is Finished. There is great danger for the sinner, but also great mercy. Should we not loudly announce both? I'm actually trying to preach against you right now. Not because I'm mad at you, not because I think that you or me, like, like that I'm somehow better than you. I'm not in any way like that. Actually, I'm preaching against you because I've come to love you. I really have. I, want, I don't want to see any person who is listening to me right now enter the gates of hell unwarned and unprayed for. You could walk out, seriously, if you are here and you have wonders about whether or not you follow Christ at all, you could walk out of the doors of this church today fully confident of everlasting joy in Christ and and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will not face the justice of God, which you so richly deserve because the one who did not deserve it richly gave you himself in your place. And that's a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good deal. The primacy of preaching. All right, the foolishness of fleeing. Uh, my favorite part of this passage is, is right here. Um, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Okay, wait a minute. Did you, we, wait, what? So here's the way it works. Usually when the word of the Lord comes to somebody and they don't want to do it, like Moses at the burning bush, they end up having a dialogue with God about why they don't want to do it, and the Lord kind of reassures them, and then might get a little bit upset with them at the end, because he's like, knock it off, just go, right? And then the prophet's like, yeah, okay, I'll go. You're God, I'm not, I'll go. 
Those are the only examples we have in the Bible. Either a prophet gets the word of the Lord and he goes right away, or the prophet gets the word of the Lord and he has a little argument about it, and then he goes. But Jonah's a special guy. (laughs) But he gets the word of the Lord, and you're expecting in the next verse, and he went to Nineveh. But Jonah rose to flee to... (laughs) Okay, Tarsis. Another map. You ready for mine? This is the Mediterranean world I'm about to do. So, so you know, the Mediterranean Sea, there's a, Spain here, and, uh, and it comes all the way over here, and there's Italy, sort of a boot, and then it comes over here. It looks like a Christmas stocking, but it's a boot. Now, it eventually goes here, and then Greece sort of comes down, and then you're over here, and then uh, this is what we call the Middle East. Jeru- Jerusalem, Israel's over here, and then, of course, you have North Africa, and it comes up. This is the Straits of Gibraltar. It's pretty good, right? But if you look at it on the side, it looks like an animal trying to bite. Anyway. So here is Jerusalem, where he is. Here's, Tarshi, or here's Nineveh. It's in the present day nation of Iraq. Go to Nineveh. Proclaim the word that I want you to preach against them. And Jonah says... Okay, he gets up, he goes down to Joppa, which is on the coast, and he goes to, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, Tarshish. (laughs) What? What are you doing? I'm going to go, but seriously, in those days, this is the edge of the known world. I, I am going to New Zealand. Do you understand? I, I'm going to get away from, away from you as much as we can. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, and this is by, from the presence of the Lord. Really? Really? Oh, he's not going to find me there. I swear. It's going to be so easy. Like, what an idiot. Right? Because that's what you call somebody who tries to, who gets a message from the word of the, from the Lord himself and calls him to go and do this. He's a prophet. He's like a believer. And a believer who gets the word of the Lord, right? The authoritative word. And then they're told, go do this thing. And then they're like, I'm not only not going to do that thing. I'm going to go the exact opposite direction because, and you can't do anything about it. What do you call someone like that? Well, an idiot. Why? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, um, there is no place from the presence of the Lord. And the idea that you can somehow run somewhere that he's not going to be able to find you. It's the same as what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Hide! Like, and second, there is a long history of people who have tried to run from the Lord and it always gets worse. It always gets worse. You know, in those days, uh, one of the things you need to know is that in the, the sea itself was viewed as the most dangerous place anywhere because there's stuff underneath the surface of the water, the Leviathan and other animals that we don't know anything about. If you want to stay safe, you stay on land. But then he goes out into the sea. He takes on the greatest danger in his entire world to try to run away from this God who's called him to go. To, it's, it's even worth it, the danger to him. To run away from God. He goes exactly in the opposite direction. Why? 
Like seriously, what is going on with this dude? Why would he run away so much like this? Well, okay. The first time that we meet Jonah in the entire Bible is uh, in 2 Kings chapter 14. Which says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign. Jeroboam is beginning his reign in Samaria. And he, Jeroboam, reigned 41 years. That's a good long reign for your kingdom. And he did, Jeroboam did what was evil. Same word as what he's supposed to preach against, Jonah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So here is a wicked king leading a portion of God's people down wickedness. What should he get? Well, he should get some judgment, right? Because that's what happens. He should get some judgment. God should come, send a prophet, declare to him something, and he should repent and come back. The Lord restored, listen, the border of Israel from Lebohamad. Instead of coming and bringing judgment, the Lord actually gives them grace. He says, oh, I'm going to give you more land. This wicked king, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Okay, think about this for just a second. So here's Jonah, he receives the word from the Lord, he goes and he proclaims it to Israel, and, and, and Israel receives pardon and increased, la- increased um, land blessing from the Lord. Jonah has been on the front lines when God sent a word to a wicked nation and then blessed them. Fast forward, Jonah's just sitting around in Jerusalem having a good old time and the Lord of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, and he says, rise up, go to Nineveh, that great city. And proclaim to them. His history is, look, okay, Lord, you bring repentance and forgiveness and restoration to people that I proclaim to. I've seen it happen. So why does he take off and leave? He doesn't want his world to work like that. Because there's a difference between Ninevites and Jewish people, right? Ninevites are groans. They're not your people, God. They don't deserve that. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. He actually tells you why it is that he gets so upset. Why it is he ran away. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, right? So all the people repent in Nineveh. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Which is what most Christians feel, right? When their friends and neighbors come to faith in Christ. Right? Ah, it stinks. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. And here's his reason for running. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Because I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful. I knew it. That you have grace and mercy. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you relent from disaster. Oh, I knew you'd do this. 
So why does Jonah run? Well, he doesn't want his world to work like that. See, Jonah's got a a viewpoint about his world that the way that he thinks it should function is the best way. And along comes God, and by the power of his word, says, no, I want it to function this way. And Jonah says, not on my watch. Not on my watch. So here's the thing. There's a little bit of Jonah in everybody. How? Okay, um... So a guy goes to church for a long time uh, with his wife. They're faithful members, in fact, of the church. They serve all over the place. It's, it's great. They've always really enjoyed the marriage sermons, you know. Ephesians 5. Husband likes it because it says to the wife, uh, you know, submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. But the word actually to the husband in that passage in Ephesians 5 is love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In fact, in the past, he's actually been part of that kind of discussion as he led his small group on how it looks like to love your wife as Christ loved the church. But you know, they've been married 27 years now. Kids are out of the house and she doesn't look like she used to. And all those little naggy things that she's done are really starting to drive him absolutely crazy. He feels alone. You know, his emotional life and intimacy with his wife is really waning. And so what does he do? He meets a young woman at work. So here's a guy who's heard the word of the Lord. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and give yourself up for her. And what he said is, I don't want my world to work like that. So I'm going to Tarshish. So you've been hurt. Welcome to the club, right? I mean, everybody's been hurt at some level or another. Some have been hurt for a lot more than others, though. And uh, when you're mowing the lawn or you're folding the clothes or you're working in the garage or you're going for a walk on your own, sometimes the thought of the person who hurt you rolls through your mind. And then you have a rehearsed conversation that you've rehearsed for a long time regarding what you really would like to say to them if nobody was else around. You're stuck in an elevator and you're both going to die. You're going to say something to this person and you have your rage fantasy at this moment, right? Like we all do. And you go to church. I mean, it's not bugging you that much, but you're bitter, You go to church, you see the Lord's Prayer. At the end of it, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The passage is, forgive as Christ forgave you. And you're like, yeah, but I'm not like that person, right? I've been forgiven, but I'm not like him, her. So you've heard the word of the Lord. Forgive as Christ forgave you. And you're like... Tarshish is beautiful this time of year. So you hear stories when you come to church about, you know, rich people in the Bible. 
There's one that you hear a lot. It's Luke 12. It's about this rich fool who decided that he, instead of when he got this bumper crop, he said, well, you know, he should be giving some of it away to what they call the gleaners, the people who are going to come after and the poor, basically, because they can, can be blessed by that. But instead, he says, you know what I could do with all this extra grain? I could actually put it in barns, but my barns aren't big enough, so I'm going to build bigger ones, and I'm going to sit on my porch and talk to myself like I'm the only person in the universe. And the Lord comes to him and says, uh, how dare you? Your life is required of you tonight. What are your barns going to do for you now? Yeah, you, you hear this story, you like it, in fact. It's a fascinating story. You go to your small group and you talk about what are the bigger barns and how is it that we do these sorts of things? And then a year later, you get this bumper crop, right? The Lord's blessed your business in a way that he's never done before. It's amazing. What are you going to do with all this extra money? Um, I sure would like to buy a little piece of Tarshish. I know I've heard the word of the Lord, but again... Land in Tarshish is great. You're a dating couple. You've been dating for, I don't know, a year, year and a half. You're, I mean, you're committed Christian people. You really want to follow Christ with the way that you're dating. You know, you, you know the Bible has passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 that says, this is the will of the Lord for you that you flee sexual immorality. And you're like, yes, I'm committed to that whole thing. But man, she looks great. Good. And the longer you date and the longer you go along, the more she looks gooder. And so you start working in your mind. I know what the Bible says about this, but the Bible is really kind of an outdated book when it comes to sexual amours, right? It didn't know about things like orientation. It doesn't understand the sexual drive like we understand it today. They didn't know all of those things. They didn't have psychologists and other groups that were studying this thing like us. And then you start playing games like, like I don't want to be, I don't want to get involved in a relationship where we're sexually incompatible. You know what? Look, I know what the word of the Lord says. I know what it says, but... I sure would like to have a piece of my girlfriend, Tarshish. Rejecting the word of the Lord is a stupid move for all of us. It will always lead you into greater pain and greater heartache than you could ever imagine. You might not get eaten by a fish, but your life will go straight off the rails. The Bible is replete with examples of people denying the word of the Lord and then it just falling apart. So here, here I am. Guess what? The Lord called you to be here today. I believe in the providence of God in such a great way that all of the factors that led you here on this Sunday morning were all because the Lord wanted you to sit here and listen as the pastor was sent to you to proclaim the word of the Lord over you, he's preaching against you because he loves you. So now you've heard the word of the Lord and what do you want to do?
You want to you want to go to you want to go to Tarshish? Pretend like this never ever happened. There's a profound foolishness in fleeing from the word of the Lord. But you know, and I know, look, the right answer to this question is, what do do you want to do? Well, not what Jonah did. What do you want to do? I want to turn to the Lord and say, yeah, my heart is filled with Tarshish, man. I want to turn to you and say, you are better. You know better. Your way is better. I know that I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But I need you to help me go to Nineveh. Again, you could leave today. Whether you've made a commitment to Christ before or not, you could leave today out of those doors fully assured that the Lord your God will be yours forever and ever and ever. And that greatest joy and eternal goodness will be yours. You could walk out today like that. But listen, if you're going to go out the doors and drive to Tarshish, I just got to tell you, there's only, there's only danger there. So what do you want to do? We're only three verses into this, right? Like three verses. What in the world are we going to do? But listen, listen, next week, Jonah gets eaten by a fish, and I'm going to mime the entire thing. All right, let's, let me pray. Father, I thank you for my friends, and I pray, Lord, that... Um, I, Lord, look, you are so kind and gracious to us to... All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof and correction and training. The man and woman of God might be mature, fully equipped for every good work. So that's why we're here, Lord, is to actually be reproved and rebuked and trained in righteousness. And sometimes like when we go into the gym and have to lift weights, our our muscles are sore afterwards, and sometimes, Father, in the church, our hearts are sore after, after it. But the solution is always toward Nineveh. It's always away from Tarsus. You are better. Jesus, you are more than we could ever ask or imagine. The joy you want to give us is, surpasses any of the joys that we will settle for in this world You're magnificent. Would we have eyes to see your magnificence and hearts that want to respond to run to you instead of away? Oh, we're so thankful for our Lord Jesus. We're thankful for our Father who welcomes us home like the prodigals we are and puts a ring on our finger and puts a robe over our shoulders and celebrates. May there be a lot of celebrating today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.